0: everybody. Welcome to another episode of Adoption Hacks. I'm Candice Laycock. Today on the show, we get to talk with Whitney Runyon from the Archibald Project. You're going to hear all about how Whitney became an adoptive mom and what the Archibald Project is. And we're also going to get into ethics and in adoption, what to be aware of and how to look for red flags as a new or prospective adoptive parent, and also how we can continue to fight for ethics in adoption as parents. I have so much respect for Whitney, Nick, and their entire team at the Archibald Project. This is a heavy topic, but so important for us to sit with. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the show, Whitney. It's great to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family? Thanks
1: for having me. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, um, my husband and I have been married for 11 and a half years, and we are founded and run an orphan care advocacy organization called the Archibald Project. And um, we have three children whom we adopted from the Republic of Congo in 2018. And they're all biological siblings, which is why we adopted three at one time, because any other reason that would just be crazy. Three at once. It was, whew, it was um, exhausting. That's a good word. <laughs>
0: exhausting but yeah that's us okay very cool and so um tell I want to know a little bit more about the Archibald project can you tell us how that started and and what it is
1: yeah um so the Archibald project so my husband was an airline pilot and I was a wedding photographer and I felt like I was supposed to reach out to an old acquaintance and ask if I could photograph her two-year-old daughter and she said yes. And so the whole photo shoot there, I'm like, why am I here? What am I supposed to be here for? Just kind of praying. Didn't really feel like I had an answer as to why I was there. And so at the very end, I asked the mom if they were going to have any more children. And she was like, well, we're actually in the process of adopting. And it was like Cloud's part. I just knew with every ounce of my being that I was there because. I was supposed to go with them to Bulgaria to document their adoption. And so I looked at the mom and I was like, I think I was supposed to go with you to Bulgaria and document your adoption. And she was like, oh my gosh, uh, let me talk to my husband. And I was like, oh yeah, let me talk to my husband. But because Nick was an airline pilot, we could travel uh, basically for free, last minute with her husband. And we did. And we went to Bulgaria. We documented the adoption of a little seven-year-old boy who has Down syndrome. And it was just such a sweet and like real and raw love story and so we photographed it put it on Facebook um, when we got home and then a few days later or a few weeks later a total stranger emailed me and said hey I just want to let you know that because of your photos we found our son and if we hadn't seen your photos we never would have found our son they were, they were adopting a chronically ill child from Ukraine. And so that's when Nick and I were just like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe photos could inspire people to adopt. And so we got with a lawyer and we formed a 501c3 nonprofit and we named it after the little Bulgarian boy, Archie, Archibald. Um, and then we started doing it, you know, Part in all of our free time, we would take vacation days from Nick's schedule and we would just go with families adopting internationally. And then um, in 2014, we were in Uganda and we just kind of saw some things that didn't really line up with what we had been told about adoption and orphan care. And so we went, or that was 2013, and we went back in 2015, 14, and we learned a lot a lot, a lot about just like corruption and child trafficking and the misuse of funds and how orphanages can actually be harmful um, in certain situations. And so we decided to quit our day jobs and take the Archibald Project full time. So in 2015, we moved to Uganda and we started really like using the term ethical orphan care sorry i'm talking this is a really long answer but we are really into advocating for ethical orphan care and i can touch more on that in a second if you'd like but yeah that's the archibald project
0: okay that's so incredible and so now that it has kind of opened up now and you guys do even more stuff too right you have a podcast where you tell people stories yeah so it's
1: so the Archibald project has always been a media based like storytelling platform. And it started with just photos and short little documentaries. And then it evolved into podcasts, blog, Instagram stories. And um, and yeah. And so by ethical orphan care, I mean, like we want children to be in families, um, safe families. Right. And so we believe Nick and I believe that. Um, children should be with their biological family if, it's, if they're able to. And so we want to encourage and inspire people to support birth families and to support um, organizations who support birth families and support organizations who support business opportunities for vulnerable mothers and fathers. And so we do that. We promote that type of work. We promote foster care. We promote reintegration into biological family amongst foster care. We promote um, education sponsorships because education can really break the cycle of poverty when poverty is a leading cause for children to be uh, orphaned in the first place. And so, yeah, that's – and obvi- and we still talk about adoption, but now I think we're talking about adoption a little bit more from, um, like, the adoptee's perspective to learn from them. That's so amazing. I mean, that's Sorry. everything. long, big answer. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's great, and it just shows, like – how holistically you are thinking about all these different things because it is complex when you start talking about orphan care. And that means so much more than just caring for that orphan. It is caring for those birth families and those communities and everything. Absolutely. And in so many different
1: countries, there's, there's so many reasons why children are placed in orphanages to begin with. And so it's just like people will never know why kids are truly in orphanages unless stories are being told about those reasons. And so that's why we really feel passionate about continuing to use our platform through storytelling, um, just to educate and advocate for vulnerable people. Me, my husband
0: and I to different mission trips and stuff. And my very first one with the group was to Mexico, to an orphanage. And when you hear orphanage, you think a certain thing and you just assume that there has been abandonment and whatever. And I don't know if I met a single child there who had a parent who actually had placed them um, in the orphanage with the idea of them being adopted. It was
1: oh yeah because
0: that was the only way they could get an education.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Most most parents, like you're saying, do not intend for their child to just be. Moved away and have a new family. They put their children in a home so that they can go to work, and their children are safe. Or they'll receive. It's a lot of people look at it to like a boarding school. So yeah, that's really sad. I know.
0: And you just unless you've experienced that or like you hear a story like you guys share, you you really don't understand all the complexities there.
1: Yeah, it's very nuanced.
0: Um. Okay. So can you talk about the power of storytelling and um, ways that you've seen its impact and why this is the way that you've chosen? to advocate
1: yeah absolutely I mean the the first story just comes to my mind is kind of just Archie's story and the but I already told you that (laughs) so but I'll expound upon that I think at the very beginning of the Archibald project we were realizing that people for the one of the first times because this was like nine years ago okay so this wasn't recently when social media and YouTube were around and it was this big thing I think Facebook was like like Instagram didn't even exist yet Um, so we were, we had a blog and we had Facebook and I think people for the first time, or it was new to a lot of people, the idea of seeing somebody go through the adoption process. And I think that it caused people to say, oh, I could do that. Because you're way more likely to do something when you know somebody who has already done it. And a lot of people don't know anybody who's adopted. And so I feel like our media and the storytelling was kind of like being that person in their lives saying, hey, I've done it. Here's my experience and this is what it looked like. And so therefore a lot of people were able to see an adoption and, or be exposed to an adoption um, if they didn't know anybody being adopted. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like, I mean, this sounds bad, but it's kind of like advertising. And it it is advertising, really, like you buy a car because you see these car commercials and you're like, oh, could I drive that car? Oh, I know somebody who has that car. Okay, I could probably do that. And so obviously, it's very different caring for vulnerable children or supporting an organization or working with a community of people. But we see it as storytelling really shows people what it could look like for them. And then, I mean, we have really cool stories, too, where, like, college students have emailed in and said, like, hey, I just want to let you know I've been following the Archibald Project for a few years now. And because of your work, I'm changing my major. I'm becoming a social worker with the desire to work with foster students. Or um, one person changed their major to be, like, a psychotherapist to work with teens that aged out of foster care. And I'm just like – and she said it was because of the Archibald Project storytelling. I was like, I never would have even imagined – that type of impact but it's I mean it's very cool and very humbling I mean this has
0: been on my mind a lot lately it's that line of like storytelling for the sake of bringing awareness and helping other people but with the other side of that being like this is a child's story I don't want to overshare I don't want to like how do you all walk that line because I think you do a really good job of it um I'm just trying to figure out like for me what that looks like
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, A, that's a great place to start is just being really aware, right? I think so many people aren't aware. And I think honestly, the Archibald Project back in the day, we were not aware. Um, There's been a lot of really great conversations from adoptees or like adult adoptees who've kind of helped us understand what is appropriate to share. Um, But I think it's kind of like for me personally I'm not going to speak for the Archibald Project now I'm going to speak for me um, with my children I share things that normal like biological families would share about their kids like oh so-and-so said this or hey this was really hard when they smeared poop all over the wall or something like just childhood stories right but I don't put my children's past online I mean people know they're adopted and they know they have a traumatic past but Nobody knows anything about their past except for the organization we worked with and the two of us and them which is awesome. I've been having really fun conversations about their past with them lately and it's really cool to watch their just like their brains develop and connect things and ask questions and process. Um so I would say my advice is just like nothing that you wouldn't share about your I mean about a um a biological child like you wouldn't want them to grow up you wouldn't want your child to grow up and everybody know this horrible thing that had happened to them and so I would say we need to honor and respect our children's stories and this is another we've been interviewing a lot of adoptees though lately and they've all said the same thing is my story is my story and my parents honored that or they didn't and that hurt our relationship and so it's just something we have to do as parents and caregivers let's go
0: from here into talking about um how you came into your own adoption of your children so talk to us about that time in Uganda and how you realized that you yourselves wanted to adopt
1: okay so when we were in Uganda actually is when I decided that I probably would never do an international adoption because of how corrupt I saw things happening in Uganda um And so when we were in Uganda in 2015, we got an email from a woman saying, hey, can you guys come document my adoption? And I responded with, like, how do you know your children truly need to be adopted? How do you know they're not being trafficked? You know, just like on and on. And she sent back this amazing email and said, actually, we were in the process of adopting from one country and we were duped and our children were being trafficked and we found out after months and months and months of atta- like mentally attaching to them and paying, you know, thousands of dollars. And we chose to walk away and we reported it. Um, and then I spent the next however long trying to find an ethical organization who truly valued biological family and reunification with biological family and supporting vulnerable women. And the last thing they would do would be international adoption. And she was like, and I found that, and it's in the Republic of Congo. And I think you need to come with us and highlight the amazing organization that they are. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, that's really cool. Okay, sure, we'll go with you. And so in October of 2015, we went to Congo for the first time. We actually met our three children. They were amazing, but, you know, we didn't – adoption was not on our hearts then. And so – a few years later, the same woman emailed me and said, hey, could you guys come back and document this a thing happening um, in Congo? Uh, oh, and by the way, could you be praying for the sibling group of three? We've been really advocating for them to get a family. And my husband and I were like, well, we can't go back. We're busy with the Archibald Project. Uh, we'll be praying for those kids. You know, I think about them all the time. And then just the Lord moved and like 2 months later we were on the plane to Congo to meet our children for a bonding trip and we spent a week in the Congo with them came home finished all of our paperwork and then when we had guardianship of them in Congo we felt like we should move to Congo because we could work from basically wherever And so we moved to Congo to get them out of the baby's home. Not that the baby's home is a bad place, but it's not a family and it's no place for children to be raised. And they were getting older. So we lived in Congo from May 2018 to December 2018 until our adoption was finalized in the U.S. And it was exhausting. And I say it was exhausting because there's many reasons it was exhausting, but mainly because we did not sleep ever.
0: (laughs) It was exhausting. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That's so crazy. And so now you've been home for two years Yeah, two years this December. Let's start talking about something you're passionate about, I'm I'm passionate about, and that is ethics and adoption. Um, So you kind of alluded to this already, um, but being in Africa and seeing some stuff really spurred this like whole ethical conversation that you were having. Can you just walk us through how that developed and uh, what you were seeing and and why that stirred something up in you?
1: Yeah. Um, So I'm going to speak from my perspective. I don't I don't want anybody out there to think that because I thought this that they thought it. But for me, when I was in the states prior to, um, prior to really living in Uganda, I would say that I was told from you know Christian books or conferences or Sundays at church that. You know, if seven percent of all Christians were to adopt, there'd be no more orphans in the world. Or, if you have a spare bedroom, you need to be adopting or doing foster care. And and while I understand the sentiment behind those bold statements, um, when I was in, and then you know, and you have all the like, and this is gonna sound horrible, but you have all the like Hollywood behind your thoughts about the orphan crisis and so when you think about adoption you think every single child is uh, both parents have passed away they're starving or their parents do not want them and the only hope is to be adopted and so we just had a lot of those thoughts turned upside down when we spent more time getting to know people who were Working really hard to keep birth parents with their children, and who were working really hard to promote education or to su- like supply jobs in rural um, areas, so that moms didn't have to place their children in orphanages. And then we found out a lot of too that orphanages open up because Westerners send over their money, and Westerners are sending their money because they think they're helping, when really a lot of times, like we literally have an interview with a man who said that he wanted to open an orphanage so he got all these american supporters i don't know how he got them but he got a lot of money from the west and he didn't have any children so he started going village to village saying hey can i have your kids we can feed them better than you can we can give them a better education than you can and nobody was saying yes and so he finally got one grandma he thought their baby was really cute and he was like oh we could adopt that baby out he kept going to her and saying, "Can we please have your do- granddaughter? Can we please have your granddaughter? Can we please have your granddaughter?" Grandma kept saying, "No, no, no, no." Finally, an American couple came over and was like, "We want to adopt that child. That is our child. We know that's our child." And the the orphanage director went back and said, "Hey, we have this family. They're in America. Your granddaughter will have a much better life. You know all these things. Can you we please will you please sign off to give us your granddaughter?" And she did weeping. He even is on video saying she's crying and crying. And finally, we got her to sign. And he's like kind of bragging about it. And I'm sitting there thinking like, what? You're begging a woman to take her daughter or granddaughter so that you can have her in your orphanage, eh? But then like to adopt her out, like that's just so not OK. That's so not OK for so many reasons. And here's the thing, too, is when you really th- try to think about it, you're like, But people are just they're they're also vulnerable people and they're also trying to feed their families and they're also trying to keep their kids out of orphanages. You know, like. I don't think as a as a Westerner who's never truly known true hunger and poverty that I can sit here and cast judgment on people, but I do want people to be aware of, you know, where their money is going and why maybe your child shouldn't be adopted internationally. And I mean, we hired a third party, I mean, hire them, but we knew them, third party to really let us know that our children absolutely needed to be internationally adopted, that that was the safest course of action, the best course of action for their specific case. Um, And so we always try to encourage people that if you are going to adopt internationally, hire a third party get some get an expat in their area to go investigate hire an investigator there's so many private investigators around the world so many expats around the world um that can maybe answer some questions about your international adoption whoever you are out there listening yeah no that's really good
0: advice when we talk about international adoption and parents maybe considering that um i've heard you talk before about the importance of the why why you are choosing international adoption just speak to that like why we really need to evaluate our mindset going into international adoption
1: i think that is a really big question that i'm probably not going to do justice (laughs) so anybody out there listening just know there's so many more thoughts to say about this than what i'm probably about to say um There have been several studies that talk about the damage of taking a child out of their first culture. Um, It is incredibly, it's an incredibly delicate and, um, what's the right word? It is not to be taken lightly, adopting out of your own race. Um... But I think people don't know what they don't know. And you won't know until you know. (laughs) And so I just, I've taught, we've interviewed so many adult adoptees and I've, I've talked to so many adult adoptees, transracially adopted adult adoptees. And some, you know, are like, my parents did a horrible job at keeping my culture and I resent them for that. Or others were like, I didn't really care and my parents loved me and it was great. Or hey, my parents really instilled my first culture and I love it. And, you know, they went back with me and we've gone back and I've gotten to meet distant biological relatives. And there's just so many things that could happen for your child as they're growing up and processing their identity that you might not be able to give them the answers they're looking for. I mean, they're already going to be processing so much with identity and abandonment if that's their case. That then adding the like cross-culturally, um, the cross-cultural differences is just, it's really heavy and it's not to be taken lightly. And I think a lot of people don't consider the weight of what could come in your child's identity processing as they grow up when they think about adopting internationally. Um, Yeah, I think it's just a lot of people, I think, can just say like, oh, I'm going to do that. I feel called to do that. Or my friends did that. So therefore, I'm going to do that. And then, okay, but you need to now learn. You need to learn a lot. I don't know. Sorry. Sometimes I feel like I'm kind of heavy.
0: No, this I mean, we're talking about ethics (laughs) and adoption. This is heavy. (laughs) And I'm asking you like the most difficult questions. And I didn't even prep you for that one. So I'm sorry. These
1: are every answer I'm giving is very high level. Okay, so anybody out there who's like taking this and that's like my only thought on it, it's not I could go on for hours and hours and hours. But I feel like, yeah, these are like high level answers. We
0: just need to think about how we answer that question. Um, I I mean, it certainly shouldn't be, oh, because domestic adoption is too expensive and foster care is too hard.
1: (laughs) No, it should not be that way. But you know what? Then I would say to those people, I would say, Maybe adoption's not for you, but if you care for vulnerable children, there's so many amazing ways that you can get involved and help. But maybe bringing a child into your home is not the best option.
0: When parents are considering going into um, international adoption and they're looking at agencies, they're looking at countries, I wanted to talk a little bit about some red flags that parents can be on the lookout for. I think that um, we invest so much into adoption, like time-wise, financially, emotionally, that once you get into a program, you put then you put your blinders on. And it's like, okay, well, I don't care what I see. And even once we're in the program or whatever, that we are very aware of how everything is being handled. So that one day yeah. you can say to your child, I did everything. I did everything Absolutely. that I possibly could. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I, I think... You hit the nail on the head with that. You have to be able to look at your child one day and say, I know that I know that I know that I know that I did everything possible to ensure that this adoption was in your best interest. And if you can't say that, then I wouldn't continue moving forward with that. Um, Okay, again, this is also pretty high level. Uh, We have a whole portion on our website that actually talks about red flags and questions to ask your agency. Um, A lot of it is with funds. Is like where where's the funding going? Do orphanages receive payments per child per adoption? Um, what is the like are the, the age are the homes that you're working with internationally? Is adoption is international adoption their first choice, second choice, last choice? Like where do they fall on supporting vulnerable women and, and mothers? Um, how are they? supporting vulnerable women and mothers, I would say if an organization is like, oh, I don't know, then to me, that would be a red flag if they are not working with organizations that are first and foremost supporting biological families to keep them together. And then this might be hard to come by, but for us and the organization that we adopted from, their number of keeping children with biological families or domestic foster care was higher than the amount of international adoptions that they had ever conducted. And so I'm like, that's amazing. That is a beautiful thing. Um, And we also, yeah, like I said, having a third party go in and do some investigating and figuring out like, is this the best case? Could this child be resettled? Do they have a Jaja somewhere in the village that could raise them and would want to raise them and it would be a safe environment for them Um, things like that a lot of times I've heard that death certificates can be forged and have been forged so again that's if you've been told that your child is truly 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 a double orphan both parents have passed away um, then you should be able to hire your own investigative person or again having an expat going up and digging around uh, to be able to ensure that that's true because I mean I've had I have friends who have said Yeah, when my child got old enough to to tell me, they were talking all the time about their mom, and I was like, "Wait, what?" Not me, but the women were like, "Wait, I, I thought your mother was dead." And they were like, "No, my mom's not dead. My mom is alive." And so I just I think that would just be such a devastating thing to learn as a parent that you're that there's another parent out there who is longing for and desiring their children to be in their arms. I mean, I had a dream. This is gonna get intense. I had a dream one night that a tornado came through our town and it just like took my children away and I didn't know where the wind had thrown them and I finally found out that they were at a a home like an orphanage and so I like again this is a dream but I like I found them at the orphanage and there was only one of my children there and I was like where are the others and they're like oh they um, a person came through and took them and they're Like, you'll probably never see them again because that person is a known trafficker. And the, like, deep anguish I felt inside my body when I woke up, it was devastating. And it was just a dream. But I was like, think about how many countless women out there experience this on a daily basis because of all the international adoptions that have happened that they did not give their consent upon.
0: How can we, other than, like, being very aware of the agencies we're working with – And what we're stepping into ourselves, how can we as adoptive parents, but also just as advocates for these vulnerable families, how can we fight for ethical adoptions?
1: I mean, I think just educating people on the corruption that's out there, really, I think if you're a person of faith and you have a a church that you go to and the churches are financially supporting homes around the world, like children's homes around the world, maybe sitting down and talking with the pastor. I mean, first learning a little bit more about the issues with some corruption and international adoption and and orphanages, but just sitting down with pastors and talking about the things that you're learning with corruption. I mean, my husband and I walked through infertility for eight years. I mean, we still have never had a child biologically. We've never done anything medically to intervene with that. But that my desire to be a mom was insane. Like it was so high, you know? And even then, I knew I'd seen women.